Engel. The Undecideds, or how certain drug lords influenced the new pop culture. We're in the 1980s. Hip-hop is starting to emerge. Cocaine is already everywhere. And soon, crack will be making a dramatic entrance in the ghetto. This unprecedented consumption will allow some dealers to become the kings of the streets and represents the new role models for their community. The Undecideds is going to tell you the journey that eight of these men went through, the harsh and brutal truth. These are the tales of millionaire drug dealers who have a direct impact on the phenomenal success of hip-hop. Think of Dr. Dre, Tupac, Jay-Z, Lil Wayne, and so many others. Would they have become such pop culture icons if certain paths were never crossed? Without passing judgment, without glorifying it, the Undecideds will guide you through the troubled backstage of hip-hop to its rise onto the worldly stage. So if you don't know, now you'll know. Episode 5, Demetrius Flanori, a.k.a. Big Meech. Atlanta, 1996. A young and ambitious drug dealer settles his operation in a strip club capital of the world. Ten years later, his business has generated more than $300 million and helped make that city the world capital of rap. His flamboyance and excess are forever engraved in rap culture and still inspire the world today. Here is the story of Demetrius Flanori, a.k.a. Big Meech. Every entertainer, athlete, or whatever, everybody want to live like they're selling kilos. Demetrius Flanori was born in Cleveland, Ohio on June 21st, 1968. Unlike the single-parent families most of his friends know, Demetrius grew up in a stable environment, surrounded by his parents and his little brother and sister. When he was young, his family moved to southeast Detroit, the Motor City, the capital of the American automotive industry. Detroit offered jobs to a demanding workforce, and the Flannori family is one of them. They are a hardworking, religious family. Even though they are raised in the church, children know God don't pay the bills. Demetrius would later say that he and his brother used to go to school with holes in their sneakers from walking around the streets all day. One morning, just like any other day, an official letter came in the mail. The family got a bill, $7,500 of late fees, due before the end of the month if they didn't want to be evicted. As a teenager, Demetrius and his little brother Terry were trying to find a solution to help the family. Only two options presented themselves. Theft, which is strictly forbidden by the Lord, or selling drugs, which isn't mentioned in scripture. The two brothers opt for the second. At that time, the drug markets in Detroit were controlled by local bosses like Maserati Rick or the YBI, a.k.a. Young Boys Incorporated. The two brothers got close to them and started selling drugs. One packet after the other. One dollar after another. The $7,500 was quickly earned and the Flannori family avoided the worst. But now, they faced a new problem. The brothers had discovered the world of easy money. At 16, Demetrius, nicknamed Michi or Meech, decided to drop out of school and concentrate on dealing. He took Terry with him. 
They went with some dealers in northwestern Detroit. The PA Boys, short for Puritan Avenue Boys. Meech and Terry were talented. In no time, they were able to move up to two kilos of cocaine a week. Everything seemed to be going smooth, but the PA boys were being watched by the Drug Enforcement Administration. And in 1988, at barely 20 years old, Meech got arrested with weed and a gun on him. Since this was his first arrest, he got two years on probation. But the PA boys, who had long criminal records, would soon see the end of their reign. The brothers decided to change their strategy. They wouldn't depend on organizations. What they wanted was to go directly to the wholesalers, increase their profits, and above all, reduce risks. Their new business had them traveling to California, and with the help of another local dealer, Wayne Waniac Joyner, they met with a member of a Mexican cartel. The game was on. As the first kilos crossed the border, the Flannoy brothers had created a new network for themselves. And thanks to a big cash settlement from eye surgery complications, Terry created a luxury transportation company. The transportation business offered two benefits for Meech and Terry. One, it helped launder their illegal profits. And two, they had access to vehicles to safely move their drugs. In fact, every car was equipped with James Bond-style storage traps and gadgets. Everything was smooth until 1994. Meech was pursued by the police and arrested with a known Colombian drug trafficker. However, lacking sufficient evidence to prosecute, Meech managed to squeeze his way out, and their organization continued to grow. In 1995, thanks to their Mexican connection, the brothers were selling in Georgia, Kentucky, Texas, and California. But it would be Atlanta where Big Meech would make history. In 1996, Atlanta was getting ready to host the Olympic Games, and the city wanted clean streets before the world and its cameras arrived. They put a team of dealers known as the Miami Boys out of business. They had been the area's biggest suppliers of cocaine. Once gone, the Miami Boys left a void, a void that Big Meech would exploit to grow his network at the center of one of America's busiest crossroads. To keep an eye on things... Meech moved to Atlanta. As big a drug market as Atlanta is, it's also rich in adult entertainment and is sometimes called the strip club capital of the world. Big Meech was a fan. In 1996, as he was leaving Miami or the Magic City, Meech was arrested and charged with assault. Allegedly, he threw a bottle into the face of a customer. Once again, it was a lack of evidence that got Big Meech off the hook. However, 1996 would continue to be a hot one for the two brothers. Members of their organization were arrested by undercover agents. Soon after, nearly $250,000 would be seized during a police raid, and another 500k would be seized at Terry's girlfriend's house. Finally, to top the year off, Big Meech was a DEA suspect in the shooting of a former dealer who later became an informant for the Atlanta police. But once again, no witnesses. He got away with it. All this heat was proving too much for the brothers. They decided to reorganize once again. Terry would go to L.A. to manage all shipments from Mexico. Big Meech would remain in charge of distribution for his new Atlanta villa, a.k.a. the White House. 
Big Meat started living large. He was making a name for himself in Atlanta. Beautiful cars and going out to clubs. His crew staked their claim with the BMF banner, short for Black Mafia Family or Big Meat Flannery, whichever. But their success wouldn't keep the cops away. On the contrary, late in 1999, 17 kilos belonging to the organization were seized in Arizona. In February 2001, another nine kilos were taken in Kansas City. But their business was tight. The police never found a trail that led to the brothers. I didn't talk on the phone about nothing. The phone for me is either you coming or you ain't. Despite these blows, the organization, built as a family, now had 500 members, covering 11 states, crisscrossing the country. This well-oiled machine guaranteed a profit, but it was mainly competitive prices and a quality product that ensured the success of the BMF. Their cocaine, a.k.a. Hummer, a reference to the Army vehicle, was almost 90% pure. Brought from the Mexican cartels for about nine grand a kilo, it was sold for 17 grand to wholesalers. The organization made eight grand per kilo, and BMF sold nearly 600 kilos a month, a net worth of nearly $5 million. It seemed Big Meech was CEO of a very profitable company. As the saying goes, work hard, play hard. And Big Meech didn't keep a low profile when it came to celebrating his success. When he went out in Atlanta, everyone knew it. You couldn't miss him. Big Meech would arrive in different strip clubs across the city with about 20 or sometimes 50 of his friends, all wearing BMF printed t-shirts. Once inside, it was showtime. The team would order the most expensive champagne and throw huge rolls of dollars at the strippers. So much so, at the end of the night, the dancers would need trash bags to pick up all the bills lying on the floor. Other customers couldn't believe their eyes. Without fail, this ritual took place every week. Soon, word on the street was that Big Meech and the BMF were literally making it rain bills in the clubs. The expression, make it rain, will be used by many rappers. It added to the culture of excess generosity that Big Meech was living. But that was just the beginning. This feeling of wealth and power would quickly push Big Meech to greater eccentricities. Like the day he invited 300 of his friends to Cancun. Big Meech booked an entire 747 for himself and his guests. Dealers, rappers, strippers, everyone in his world high in the sky. During the flight, Big Meech even poured out bottles of Cristal for everyone. As the story goes, he even asked the captain if he could fly the plane. After all, he was the one paying. The craziness didn't stop. Meech booked out a resort for his guests, who spent an entire week celebrating. Meanwhile, back in Atlanta, the nights were getting tense. On November 11, 2003, some members of the BMF were in the parking lot of Club Chaos. A fight broke out between Big Meech and Anthony Wolf Jones. Wolf was a bodyguard for Sean Combs, a.k.a. Puff Daddy. Even though Big Meech and Wolf were on friendly terms, that night, things started to heat up over one of Wolf's exes. Meech, who was with a friend named Bull, exchanged words with Wolf, who also had someone with him. The heat goes up a notch as shots rang out in the parking lot. Bull was shot in the foot and Big Meech in the butt. Across the parking lot, the toll is heavier. Wolf's friend dies instantly. Anthony Wolf 
takes several bullets to the chest, and loses a lot of blood. He's rushed to the hospital in serious condition. He dies a few hours later. Big Meech is questioned about these murders, but once again, due to a lack of evidence or witnesses, charges are dropped. Whether BMF was connected or not, incidents around the city's clubs were on the rise. The mayor decided to shut down everything at 2 a.m. instead of 4 a.m. Far from his brother's high life, Terry was living in California and did not approve of the Atlanta-based branch's newfound popularity. Unfortunately, it wasn't over yet. Big Meech was always in search of the spotlight. He started looking into the world of entertainment, especially if it could help him launder money. His first steps into the game, supporting a young rapper from Atlanta, Young Jeezy. Again, everything will revolve around the clubs. Big Meech would take advantage of his VIP status to ask the local strip club DJs to play Young Jeezy. His plan was a simple one. The better the songs were, the more the customers would spend. The more customers spent, the more the dancers would ask the DJs to play these songs. In Atlanta, more than anywhere else, strip clubs helped to create the hottest talents. In addition to giving Young Jeezy street cred, Big Meech let him use his Ferrari and Lamborghini for the filming of his videos. In return, Young Jeezy would give shout-outs to Meech and BMF in songs and interviews. In 2004, Big Meech took the leap. He launched both the BMF Entertainment label and a lifestyle magazine called The Juice. And yeah, you guessed it, he put himself on a cover for the launch. Rather unexpectedly, Young Jeezy did not sign at BMF, but chose Def Jam and its iconic president at the time, Jay-Z. Jay-Z had followed the Young Jeezy buzz in Atlanta. A rapper who sold thousands of mixtapes, rolled up in a Ferrari, and showered dances with hundreds of dollars every weekend did not go unnoticed. Between 2004 and 2005, Atlanta had become the capital of rap. Crunk music, and especially trap music, introduced by Jeezy, began to dominate the charts. Trap is popular in Southern hip-hop with big bass, big synths, and 808 drums. The lyrics talked about trap houses and what happened there. Making crack, drug deals, fights, all with arrogance and disregard for the authorities. The first artist signed by Big Meech was a young rapper from Los Angeles who was close to BMF, the so-called Blue Da Vinci. The Big Meech touch would quickly become recognizable. Close friends with many rappers, he managed to include Fabulous or Young Jeezy in his protege's first projects. Big Meech wanted everyone to know that from then on, he had to be included. For that, he bought a huge billboard on the exit for the Atlanta airport. It read, The World is BMF, a not-so-subtle reference to the movie Scarface. BMF had become a brand, three letters on diamond chains, tattooed on forearms, or worn proudly on t-shirts from Atlanta to L.A. Big Meech crossed paths with other heavyweights in the industry, like the day in Brooklyn when he met Jay-Z on the set of Young Jeezy's first single featuring Akon, Soul Survivor. On site, with all the rap stars present, it was a battle for who would shine the most. Cameron was there with his Dipset crew. Lil Wayne was behind the wheel of his red Ferrari. Calvin Bacot, a.k.a. Calvin Klein, an 80s kingpin, was on set. For now, he was a manager of Akon. 
But Jay-Z cared only about his own entrance. He arrived at the wheel of the first Mercedes Maybach sold in the United States, a $300,000 car that everyone had to notice. Big Meech was not to be outdone. He arrived with not one, but two Maybachs. And coincidence or not, they blocked the location access to Jay-Z. That money showdown confirmed Big Meech's position in the big league and made everyone understand that the industry couldn't ignore him. BMF and Big Meech were building a diverse mafia-style organization, present in the streets, the clubs, and the rap industry. Big Meech loved to stage himself. Cameras followed him into the clubs or at concerts for interviews, even into his garages filled with ridiculously expensive cars. His lifestyle fascinated the streets. You know what I'm saying? And we can't be stopped. I don't see nobody stop. I don't see none to come after us either. None. I don't, nobody will never do this again because this many niggas and this much money can't get along and stay together. They're going to fall out over girls or something. We don't fall out over no girls. Big Meech clearly had a problem keeping things in proportion. For his 36th birthday, he organized a huge party at the Compound Club in Atlanta. The theme of the evening, the jungle. Something Big Meech knew well. He had elephants, lions, and zebras brought into the club at a cost of over a hundred grand. And to make sure that no one would forget that evening, Big Meech bought either a bottle of Perrier Jouet or Cristal for every guest. BMF was on fire. The authorities could no longer afford to stay idle. A special task force was set up consisting of the DEA, ATF, High Intensity Drug Trafficking Areas Program, and Atlanta Police Department with one goal, to bring Big Meech and his organization down. All that teamwork paid off. In July 2005, Meech's brother Terry was arrested in Illinois during a road check. He was carrying about $4 million worth of jewelry. Terry's excuse, those jewels were for a young Jeezy's photo shoot. Not convinced, the authorities seized the jewels and used this evidence to open a case for money laundering. Quickly, two other names appeared in the file. Jacob Arabo, a.k.a. Jacob the Jeweler, known as the jeweler to the stars like 50 Cent and David Beckham, and Damon Thomas, first husband of TV star Kim Kardashian, the future Miss Kanye West. The business was starting to spiral out of control. On the music side, BMF was still relevant, but not for its recordings. It all started with a beef between rappers, nothing new. On one side, Roderick Davis, a.k.a. Gucci Man, a promising young talent from Atlanta. On the other, Big Meech's favorite rapper, Young Jeezy. Gucci Man and Young Jeezy knew each other. They even did a song together called So Icy. But after an ego trip, Young Jeezy offered 10 grand to anyone who could bring back Gucci Mane's diamond chain. Of course, Jeezy found plenty of volunteers. One night, five guys broke into Gucci Mane's place to steal the famous chain. Gucci Mane, familiar with the Second Amendment, took out his gun and shot the intruders defending his property. The result? One death. Gucci Mane was questioned by the ATF, the FBI, and the DEA, who wanted to know why a man was dead, but especially to question him about the actions of the BMF. Gucci Mane didn't say a word. The street's code of silence is law, and his lawyer managed to prove self-defense. Gucci Mane, a.k.a. Guwap, was free. In 2005, 
Big Meech's business became more and more complicated. After lengthy surveillance and wiretapping, a top BMF member, Omari O'Dog McCree, goes down for drug trafficking. He's the first on a long list. In August 2006, he pleads guilty and is sentenced to 15 years. To reduce his time, Omari cooperates with the authorities and explains the inner workings of the organization, pointing out various leaders. Heads start to roll. 47 members of the BMF were arrested in October. Police seized 635 kilos of cocaine and $14 million. Obviously, the two brothers would meet the same fate. Terry was arrested in his beautiful villa in the suburbs of St. Louis. Big Meech was arrested in his $1 million home in Frisco, Texas. The family collapsed. But the BMF could be proud of its legacy. It took 21 government agencies and 15 states to dismantle the organization. Trials began in February 2006, and the list of sentences was long. 15 years for Jeffrey Lear, one of the organization's heads, and five years for his girlfriend. A life sentence for Tremaine Kiki Graham, a boss and the son-in-law of the mayor of Atlanta. His background as a solid college basketball player forced the investigators to interview pros like Charles Barkley and Michael Jordan, who were friends of the gangster. Three years in prison for Bull, who was with Big Meech during the parking lot shooting. He pleaded guilty to drug trafficking. 15 years for Jabo, Big Meech's right-hand man. The artists were not spared either. Rapper Blue Da Vinci, signed by BMF's Entertainment, got five years. And Jacob the Jeweler, cited in Terry's money laundering case, got two and a half years and a $50,000 fine. In total, 32 members pleaded guilty to the charges against them. The arrest didn't stop there. In 2007, they were nearly 150 members in court. Add to that list the seizure of 13 villas and 35 luxury cars. Big Meech and Terry were charged with several counts, including continuing criminal enterprise, possession of drugs, and money laundering. At that time, investigators felt they could buy Terry. They offered him 20 years in exchange for a full confession about his brother. Terry didn't even let them finish. His answer left no doubt. Never in a million years. Just as in the beginning, when they had to find a solution to pay the fines, two choices presented themselves to the Flannery brothers. Go to trial and risk maximum penalty, or plead guilty and negotiate a sentence. The brothers didn't know if the prosecution had witnesses who would bring them down, and they didn't want to take the risk of going to jail for life. So they decided to plead guilty and negotiate a shorter sentence. On November 29, 2007, Terry, Southwest T, and Demetrius Big Meech were each sentenced to 30 years in prison. Big Meech was 39 years old. Meech would be incarcerated in Atlanta Penitentiary and Terry in Pollock, Louisiana. Separated since that court decision, Terry would have these words for his brother. I would tell Big Meech he was out there that life is too short to get caught up in a lifestyle we once chose, a route and a path we once went down that got me 30 years. If I had a chance to do it all over again, I would have chose the educational route and put the same energy and time into doing the right thing 
and uplifting the people and the community so that we could be out there with our families and make a difference. During their years on top, Big Meech, Terry, and a black mafia family, according to the authorities, would have generated more than $270 million. BMF was, is, and will remain one of the biggest street brands. It helped solidify Atlanta as the center of rap in the U.S. It brought Atlanta rappers to the world by introducing artists like Young Jeezy, Gucci Mane, 2 Chains, and Migos, who created an uninhibited and exuberant culture that nourished art and lifestyle. Today's rappers imitate what they saw or heard about the adventures of Big Meech and the BMF. Gucci Mane himself confided that as a teen, he dreamed of becoming a member of BMF. Some old-timers will tell you about the emotion they felt when they shook Frank Sinatra's hand. But in Atlanta, people are proud to say that they were there when Big Meech would make bills rain on the dancers' asses. A ghetto legend who even while in jail makes people happy. Like the time at an auction when a man bought one of the big boss's old cars. One day, while cleaning the car, he found a hidden stash of cash in a secret compartment. He could have kept it, but chose to call the police and had all the money returned. These are the kind of stories that Hollywood loves. 50 Cent is even in serious discussion about producing a series on the BMF. Demetrius Big Meech Flanori, the guy that signs all his letters, death before dishonor, will leave prison on February 25th, 2032. His little brother Terry in 2031. Find the playlist related to the episodes on all the streaming platforms and on theundersiders.com. The Undersiders is produced by Angle and created by Francois Cousset. Sound production by V in Paris, France. Original scores by Max Eppel. English version narrated by Ellis Park and recorded at Lotus Productions in New York City. Find more episodes of The Undersiders anywhere you find podcasts and on theundersiders.com. <laughs>